Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 64 of the Essential X-Lapsed. And uh, boy, uh, this is one I'm glad I'm not doing live because um, although it's, you know, the beginning of the year, it's early mid-January, I swear I've got, uh, you know, spring allergies creeping up here. So a lot of uh, throat clearing, a lot of sniffling, <laughs> and a lot of other unpleasant stuff that I'm hoping uh, doesn't come across here in this uh, little audio ditty that I'm putting together right now. So um took me several tries just to get the first line of this episode out. I think I... I hope I did. I hope I said essential X-lapsed. I might not have. You know, I might not have since coming back. I might have just said X-lapsed. And if so, uh, uh, whoops, <laughs> I guess. Um, today we are going to... Uh, well, we're going to be bringing the team back together after their long, long time away. Or apart, rather, apart from one another, away from one another, except that they were kind of paired off and we never saw Angel, but, eh, details. <laughs> we will uh, we will just uh, power through and um, play the hand that we're dealt. And speaking of playing the hand we're dealt here, um, it's, uh, it's pretty weird. I've only been back uh, four episodes now. And um, while I've missed recording and I've missed, uh, you know, touching base with folks uh, quite quite a lot in the time I was away, one thing I didn't miss was doing show notes. Holy cow, I forgot how much I hated writing show notes. <laughs> it's like it's like I'm sitting there in front of a blank screen. You know, it's the classic writer problem, the, the writer quandary here. It's like, I just talked about this for a half hour to an hour, and what the hell am I going to write about it in, in like a bite-sized... You guys know I don't, I don't... Brevity is not my strong point. And if it were up to me, my show notes would basically just be my script, which would not be <laughs> advantageous at all. So trying to sum up what it is that I talked about or discussed or covered or whatever. I, I'm saying the same thing over and over again, I understand. See, brevity, not my strong suit. To do that is quite a challenge for me. So it's weird. I, it's like I enjoy this recording so much. I enjoy, you know, popping music on the beginning and end because, I mean, it takes five seconds to do. But, like, when I upload this thing to, to Podbean or the blog or whatever, it's like, what the hell am I supposed to say about this? It's like, yeah, uh, Chris talked about the X-Men again. And, oh, yeah, we did mailbox <laughs> and bullpen bulletins. It's weird. It's very, very weird. But to talk a tiny bit more about um, the things that I did miss about this while I was away, I received a uh, letter from a friend uh, a few days ago, I think after my first recording back, and it said that they thought that I, they really thought that I would be back for Christmas. And if you've followed, you know, what it is I do here and on the blog, uh, you'll know that uh, I always... I always do something special for Christmas. I usually do something special for Christmas twice a year. You know, I'll do the Christmas on Infinite Earths and then Christmas on Infinite Earths in July. I do that every year, and I've done it every year since 2016. So, I mean, that's seven-ish years ago. And it's been every single year. And, you know, I wanted to get back for Christmas. It's weird not doing a show or a blog during Christmas time might have been like the last straw in kind of forcing my hand and making me really, really want to come back. Um, the Christmas shows that I would do and that I did with Reggie and that I've done with uh, Chris Bailey and, and just any Christmas special that I've done over the years has been something that uh, 
I don't know, just it, they've been things that I've gotten a lot out of. And um, as a, you know, childless man, um, Christmas isn't quite as special as it perhaps could and should be. You know, I'm just a, a guy who's getting older every year, who still decorates the house, but really doesn't have much of a reason to. You know, other than, you know, just demarking that it's a different time of year. And uh, I think I was always able to, I don't know, kind of distract myself from how potentially hollow and empty the holiday season can feel by diving into, you know, a little comic project, you know, whether it be a series of blog posts, a series of episodes, uh, both, you know, a mixture of the both. But this year, um, I didn't have that. This year it was just, you know, me and the wife sitting in an empty house with a gaggle of Christmas trees up that uh, the whole time they were up, I was just like, oh man, I'm going to have to take those down. <laughs> so it was not really as enjoyable as um, as you picture it to be. You know, um, I feel like, at least for me, any time of year that isn't Christmas, I'm just wishing it was Christmas. And uh, then you get there... And it's really not exactly what you'd hoped it would be. There really isn't um, much of a difference between a day in December as there is a day in July or August. Especially here in Arizona where the temperatures don't go down that much. So it's, I don't know, it's just a very hollow feeling to not have anything to outwardly celebrate. And while the show and the blog wasn't you know, it wasn't like a huge gala or anything. It was just, it was something special. It was something to mark, you know, to mark it being special, something being different. And um, not having that this year, I don't know. I guess it's a case of not knowing what you had until you, you don't have it. You know, I don't know that I ever truly appreciated our little, you know, Christmas visits or holiday visits until we just didn't have them for a year. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's weird. <laughs> and, uh, it just, you know, all those thoughts came flooding back when I saw that email saying like, oh, you know, I, I thought you might be back for Christmas, but you know, better, you know, better late than never. However they worded it, I, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head, but it, it just triggered all these, um, weird emotions and thoughts to come back to the, uh, to my, uh, addled forebrain. And, uh, Makes me kind of kick myself for not having come back a couple of weeks before I actually did because I think that I don't know I don't I don't know if it would have been special to anyone but me uh, and maybe a couple of folks but yeah I feel like I missed out you know it's it's weird and not to go off on an even deeper tangent but um I mean the world's a very different place now than it was even just a couple of years ago you know we're very we're very, you know, separate. We're very segregated from one another for a variety of reasons, whether it be, you know, fear of illness or, you know, I feel like uh, tensions are at a fever pitch where families don't even see one another if they have the slightest disagreement on anything. So it's, uh, it's weird times we're living in. And for me personally, I, everything I do is at the house. You know, work is here, family's here. Every, everything is here. So... At the risk of sounding like a 1950s housewife, if I if I don't have a hair appointment, I don't have to leave the house. You know, it's sad the uh, state of the world and the the state of things. But um, 
I guess all we can do is the best we can do, right? But uh, now that I've bummed us all out, <laughs> let's let's discuss uh, this issue here, which, um, well, it, I don't know if it'll raise anybody's spirits. Um, we are meeting Lorna Dane today. That's something, right? That's exy. That's, you know, and I said exy like X, not sexy, just exy. I mean, that's, that's a thing. So uh, how about we get into it here? We got X-Men number 49 with an October 1968 cover date. The story is called Who Dares Defy dot 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 the Demi-Men. You all remember the Demi-Men, right? Those famed ex-villains, right? <clears throat> Written by Arnold Drake, layouts Don Heck, pencils Werner Roth, inks John Tartaglione, letters Herb Cooper, edits Dan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Let's take a look at the cover here. It's not a, not a very special cover, but it is by Jim Steranko. And I did talk about him a little bit last episode. Uh, I talked about him by saying I really didn't care much for his interiors during his X-Men stint. But, you know, the covers are something special. You know, uh, this one, his first, kind of awkward. A little awkward, a little weird to look at. But, I gotta say, it's a lot better than the last handful. And I, th- for all I know, he might have done the last three uh, <laughs> three covers. I didn't even check. But this one does stand out as being different. Um, also, the original X-Men logo makes its return, and also its final appearance here before being Starenko-fied with issue 50. Uh, let's open this one up here. We open with Angel popping back in on the now-abandoned Xavier School. Why is he here? Who knows? He, he doesn't say. Anyway, he kind of gets lost in thought, waxing on about his life and times as an X-Man. When he's suddenly shocked back to reality by a familiar ticking sound, and that ticking sound is, of course, Cerebro. So it looks like the machine has sent some pretty intense mutant energy. And on this night, it's found the highest recorded concentration of mutants, like, ever. So, I mean, that's that's some good timing. Very, very uh, convenient. Now... Warren makes like ElfQuest and sends a telepathic message to Jean Grey, who then sends out her own TP missives to Scott, who is uh, currently on the air reading the news, because he is totally qualified to do that. She also sends to Hank, who's with Bobby way out in California. Hank doesn't get the message, however, or at least he's not in any position to answer the call just yet, because you see, he and Bobby, they're currently at work. You want to know what their jobs are? Their jobs are apparently jumping out of airplanes. I I don't know if maybe they're parachute testers. I don't know. No, no, they're actually daredevils. And Bobby has dubbed the team the Danger Twins. Now, as Hank plummets, he realizes that Gene is tickling his brainstem. And this causes him to forget to pull the ripcord on his chute. So it looks like he's going to die. So I guess maybe we can compare this to, like, don't text and drive. You know, maybe this is just an escalated form of that. Don't... Don't telepath and dive out of a plane? I don't know. Anyway, Bobby mocks up some icy tongues to catch his big-footed brother. And despite the fact that his little, you know, ice tongue sculpture shatters, it somehow saves the beast from going splat. I mean, he still hits the ground, but he's okay. So, okay, I guess. Uh, From here, we shift scenes to the haunted house from the beginning of Scooby-Doo. Inside, Mesmero makes his first appearance. He addresses his crew. They are the elite guard of the Demi-Men, who are also making their first appearance, so don't worry too much about what makes these Demi-Men more elite than the rank-and-file Demi-Men. Anyway, 
Mesmero claims here to have been tasked with raising up an army of mutants under the order of Magneto. The Demi-Men refer to Mez as Magneto's noble pupil. And so the Mez turns to a room-filling apparatus that he refers to as the Psych Generator. He calls out to any latent mutants who might heed his call and join in his master's cause. One such specimen is a pretty brunette, dressed like she should be asking someone to sock it to her on Laugh-In. She mindlessly steps into traffic and is very nearly clobbered by a truck before one Bobby Drake pulls her to safety. She asks where she is, like she's been zapped back to reality, to which Bobby informs her that she is in San Francisco. But, she says, that cannot be because she lives 1,200 miles away from California. Now, she doesn't remember much, but she does know her name. And her name is familiar to all of us. It's Lorna Dane. Bobby takes her back to his apartment for a cup of coffee, and she says, she says she's in no condition to refuse, which isn't technically a yes, but I guess it's good enough for 1968. Let's hop back to the East Coast, where Angel leads Cyclops and Marvel Girl to a supersonic jet on loan from the Avengers in order to get them across country with the quickness. And they arrive in San Francisco in, I don't know, five minutes? It's very, very quick. Now, they arrive just in time to witness Hank yelling at Bobby for bringing the PYT he saved back to their pad and potentially into their web of mutant superheroics. The team reconnoiters, and Hank reveals that he's been working on building a portable Cerebro unit. He's also, like, 85% sure that Bobby's got the hots for young Ms. Dane. Well, moving on. From here, the kids, sans Hank, load into the Avengers loner and use the mini Cerebro to track down the Demi-Men. Which, I guess, makes them mutants, then? Well, according to the always-accurate Marvel Wiki, at least some of them are. And I gotta wonder if any current-year writer had these goofs move on to, you know, into a condo on Krakoa. We get about four pages here of X-Man on Demi-Man action. And I gotta say, I'm finding these late Silver Age fight scenes... Uh, I mean, they may as well all be the same one reprinted over and over again. I don't think anyone would notice. Uh, the battle ends with the X-Men winning, but just barely. You see, Warren suffers an injury from something that happened off-panel. So it's like, the smoke clears, Angel's laying there, and it's like, oh, he was hurt. Where? When? How? Doesn't matter. Let's hop back to the bachelor pad, where Lorna Dane has just taken a shower. Exiting the bathroom, she runs into Hank, who is wearing his Beast costume, and she, <laughs> she doesn't seem terribly surprised by it. Like, it's a very casual reaction. Though he does lie anyway, and he just says he's a friend of Bobby Drake's. And oh, by the way, if you're reading The Essentials, this might be lost on you, but um, Lorna's hair is now its more familiar shade of green, to which Hank is very, very surprised by this. She explains that she dyes it brown, but that the dye washes out after a shower. You see, she doesn't want her green hair to be noticed and asks that Hank keep it a secret. Now Hank, I mean, Hank is a smart dude, right? Very, very smart. Very, you know, highly educated. Uh, he will, you know have PhDs and MDs and all this stuff down the line, but he is able to deduce by the fact that Lorna has green hair as point of fact that she is a mutant. Because <laughs> she has green hair. Um, his quote is, she's obviously a latent mutant. I, I, I mean, I guess uh, just send it to the peer review, right? Anyway, moments later, the rest of the team return to the bachelor pad. Gene immediately backs up Hank's prognosis that Lorna Dane is a mutant. Because of the green hair, you see. 
Cyclops assumes that Magneto's behind all of this, which I suppose, I mean, this is an X-Men comic, so it is the safest bet going. Even though we just saw the dude die back in Avengers number 53, which uh, we did discuss about 100 years ago in episode 59 of this program. The crew goes to head off to the Scooby-Doo Haunted Mansion. They leave Iceman behind in order to stay with and keep watch over Lorna. And I, I said Iceman on purpose here because he is Iceman, not Bobby Drake. He's being very, very protective over his secret identity right now. So Bobby and Iceman are two separate people, at least as far as Lorne is concerned. Now, with 80% of the X-Men away, Mesmero and his demi-men descend upon the bachelor pad to, I guess, procure Lorna Dane. Iceman, of course, is quickly KO'd by Mesmero's mental hoodoo. The demi-men approach Ms. Dane, and, well, things are looking quite dire. Suddenly, and surprisingly... They stop their approach, and rather than attack or kidnap her, they bow to her. Huh. Well, that's where we leave it. Uh, Next issue, the milestone 50th issue, promises to share with us the truth about Lorna Dane. And hopefully that truth is that she's more than just a current year background character who gets zero dialogue and whose entire personality is that she drinks coffee. Well, not much more, but still. That's our lead story. We still have a backup. For better or for worse, we've got a backup. This story is called A Beast is Born, written by Arnold Drake, with pencils by Werner Roth, and inks by Jean... Jean. No, wait, what am I talking? Jean Reporten. Letters Irving Watanabe, and edits by Stan Lee. And this is a... eh, Another boring backup. It's a a quick and dirty about uh, Hank's parents. You see, this is before mutants were a millennia-old race, before the Akaros, the Akaras, Krakoas, all that nonsense. No, no swords of destiny or whatever the hell a sword was. This is back when the children of the Atom were, well, you know, just that, children of the Atom. As such, it's here we meet the McCoys, Norton and Edna. Norton works at the atomic energy plant, and who, after some sort of near catastrophe, found himself nearly fried to a crisp by atomic radio energy or some such nonsense. Jump ahead a little while, and he's uh, he atomically impregnates his wife, who then gives birth to a big-footed baby boy. Now, you know how all we seasoned X-Fans sometimes bring up how Jamie Madrox's powers manifested at birth, or seemingly manifested at birth? The story being that when the doctor slapped his fanny, he allegedly produced Jamie's first dupe. Well, it looks like Hank's mutantum was also from birth or thereabouts. One of the first things he does is punch his Uncle Bob square in the chin. He then goes on to feed himself, holding the baby bottle with his giant monster feet. And, uh, well, that's where we leave it. Um, Until next time, of course, because these backups must continue. So what do we got to say about this issue? Um, Well, I got nothing to say about the backup. (laughs) I very seldom do, but the feature story, the the main story, I suppose... um, It felt a lot more like an X-Men comic than we've gotten for the past little while. Uh, And it's only been two issues that the team was split up, but... I don't know, I feel like um, those stories were... I think one of the letters in the mailbox last episode or last issue um, said that uh, some of the stories felt like filler. And that's very, very true. Now, I can't say for certain how these stories would be received had I been reading them one a month. You know, it might just be like, oh, we're, you know, we're back with the X-Men for 15 pages. But doing them day, you know, day by day by day, it really does um, fall into that filler formula. So this issue 
kind of stands out in that uh, not only does it, uh, it's not a done-in-one, right? A lot of the stories we've been getting to this point have been done-in-ones. Um, stories that are very circular in nature, like when the, the juggernaut came back from the Crimson Cosmos, you know, it's like he starts in the cosmos, he ends in the cosmos. Nothing really changes uh, except, you know, that they, they fought and then, you know, uh, Framus Duncan drops the uh, the truth bomb on the team at the very, very end. But the whole juggernaut portion felt like this circular sort of, we need to fill these pages. We can't just ship one page that has Framus Duncan saying, hey, X-Men, you don't, you're not a team anymore, you know? And then, of course, we get the solo bits, and they were not great. <laughs> um, so here... You know, we get a story that kind of taps into the uh, to the X-Men lore here um, in both a, a hindsight sort of way from, you know, 2023 looking back and also from a pre-68 way where we're looking forward. We get ties to Magneto. We get Magneto um, having a, a, you know, a noble pupil in Mesmero. We get the introduction of Lorna. We get the team coming back together. It's not bad. Really not bad. Um, and I'm happy... I'm happy to report that. You know, we talked um, during our little treadmilly bit last episode about how, you know, this isn't an oft-discussed era for the X-Men. You know, the Friedrich Drake um, eras are really just uh, things that happened. You know, we really don't talk much about them. So it's nice that we got this, and um, it was a pretty decent issue. I did have my fun with it, of course. I always tend to. But, um, but if we get more issues... You know, like this and less like Red Raven, I, I think we're in for some good times. So I think that's about all I got to say about the story here. You know, it's fun, but not much to it. Uh, let's hop into the mutant mailbox here. And, well, this is going to be awkward because, you see, it's just the letters. Stan doesn't reply to any of them. And, uh, well, he's going to talk about just why he didn't in the bullpen bulletin, so uh, stay tuned for that. Um, so I don't know if I'll have snarky comebacks to these letters. I'm not a terribly funny or creative guy, so I don't know if I'll be able to come up with anything. But let's see. We got George in the Bronx. Now, he says that issues 45 and 46 were a great improvement for the book. For real? Really? Okay. I mean, you offer me $1,000 right now, I couldn't tell you what happened in X-Men 45. <laughs> um, 46 was the, the juggernaut one, but I couldn't tell you a damn thing about 45. Maybe that was part of the Avengers crossover, I, I don't know. Uh, George also says that, uh, get this, they're progressing with Iceman's powers too slowly. Well, Georgie, <laughs> you just wait till current year where we're still getting the semi-annual Bobby finally realizes the full potential of his powers story, which, uh, it's like every three months we get that. It's like, oh boy, he could do something with ice, and it's powerful. And he never realized he could do it before, except for the five times he did it before, and the five times he'll do it afterwards. It's They, they, they still don't know what to do with Bobby, in as far as his powers are concerned. Next up, Corinne in Chicago. Uh, Corinne hopes that the team being broken up is a temporary thing. They ain't too sure about the covers focusing more on the individual characters than the X-Men team. Again, another comment on the logo being shrunk down. Corinne congratulates Stan on the slew of new titles, including Submariner and Iron Man. And while they're at it, Doctor Strange and S.H.I.E.L.D. as well. Oh, also, while I'm here, I really dug the recent issue of Marvel Superheroes, uh, especially the Medusa story in it. 
She hopes that this is leading to Marvel launching a book starring a superheroine. And, well, uh, I guess don't hold your breath, because sadly, those barely sell even 60 years later. Tom in Pennsylvania. Ain't too sure he'll be keeping up with the X-Men after the death of Professor X. And uh, seeing Professor X's tombstone in X-Men number 46 was, uh, was Tom's Rubicon there. That's when he knew it was all true, and we're never, ever going back. Uh, Tom also hates the uh, new cover design, comparing it to a brand ugh book. Not a huge fan of Gary Friedrich. Says that he's uh, better suited on the war mags. And, um, you know, Gary Friedrich's X-Men wasn't all that hot, so maybe he, maybe he is better suited for the war mags. I don't really read war mags, so I couldn't tell you. Tom goes on to complain about the cover copy again, and also raises the concept that a child born with birth defects should be considered a mutant. And as such, they would find representation in the X-Men book, uh, which is his roundabout way of saying he wants the X-Men to reband as a team. I mean, it's kind of a heady concept, and uh, definitely a letter that is hurt by Stan not offering his two cents at the end. No matter how you know vapid Stan's comments could be at times, um, I think this one could have been interesting to have Stan um, offer his opinion on. Anyway, next up, another. Well, I was going to say another VIP, but no, it's the same VIP. Tony Isabella writing in again. He says, issue 46 wasn't as bad as the most recent X-Men issues. Well, there you have it. However, despite the fact that it was one of the better issues, it still employed one of Marvel's worst ever plots. Which is to say, a circular plot. The one we've already talked about, where a villain pops in, gets beat, and then goes back to where they came from. Which, yes, that is a pretty awful plot, but, I mean, it's 1968. Isn't that like 95% of superhero comics at this point? I mean, Tony, how did you stick around in the fandom? Anyway, turns out that Tony is a big Gary Friedrich fan, going so far as to suggest that his script was, quote, beautiful. It was not. I mean, that's just my opinion. It was not. Um, It... As I said during that issue, I read as pure recitation of what was occurring on panel, and not much more. I mean, it could be a panel of uh, pots and pans falling on Jean Grey's head, and Cyclops would be there saying, Oh no, pots and pans are falling on Jean Grey's head. It was really not great. Uh, Tony wants more Framus Duncan. He wants Werner Roth to get more Marvel work, suggesting bringing back some Western books that uh, he might want to work on, Kid Cult in particular. He thought the origin of Iceman's story was excellent, but still believes Marvel should have stuck it in a 25-cent X-Men Origins special. So Tony's kind of all over the place in, in uh, you know, running this book down and giving it credit, which I, I guess it doesn't make a much different than me. <laughs> it's, it's just the way we work. Uh, Colin in Australia. He thought the X-Men sucked during the past few years, but they're hitting their stride again following the death of Professor X. He does, however, hate the new costumes, Angels in particular. He's also quite annoyed at Marvel's high subscription rates in Australia. I guess it's a good thing that Stan is the postmaster general of the planet, right? Um, I don't know that Stan has much control over that. Sorry, Colin. Next up, Vic in Puerto Rico. Now, uh, this goofball tries jumping on the acronym train that a few letter hacks have been trying to force over the course of our time doing this book. Like where it's like, hey Stan, uh, the people from Spam are after you, and it's the the S to the P to the A to the. It's just they try to like make words, and it's not funny. It wasn't funny then; it ain't funny here. So, um, yeah, we're just gonna move on to the next letter. Aaron in New Mexico. 
thought the professor's death was going to be a gimmick that would be undone with the quickness, but now, now he knows that Charlie's gone forever. He literally begs Stan to bring the professor back. And I gotta ask here, um, this might just be current year Chris here, but wasn't, wasn't Chuck like the worst part of this book? Uh, I don't know. Tom in Virginia. Loved the cover of X-Men number 46, says it was the most symbolic Marvel cover since Spider-Man number 50. And that's the Spider-Man No More cover, just in case you forgot. But, I mean, that's a fairly iconic one even to this day. He hopes the disbandment of the X-Men is short-lived, and he wants the origins of the X-Men story to be collected in their own book. Our penultimate letter is Michael in Pennsylvania, who had a whole bunch of problems regarding the X-Men's fight with the Juggernaut in X-Men number 46. He goes so far as to suggest that Stan and the gang were asleep when putting this one together, which uh, might be on to something. Uh, he did love the art, though. Now, he says that Juggernaut's rec- recollection of getting sent to the Crisman, Crim- Crisman, wait, Crimson Cosmos was incorrect. And he says that Juggernaut spoke too much like a hood. And yet, <laughs> he, he's complaining about this story, and he says, I wish it was a two-parter. Maybe he's a glutton for punishment. Maybe he wants to complain about more pages. I, I don't know. So awful. St- it's that. Uh, what is that? Is that, a, is that a Groucho Marx line? It's like the food's terrible and the portions are too small. It's kind of like that. Um, Michael also he wraps up by saying he appreciates Jean's figure. To which he says, "Quote: Wow, face loose and hang front." What in all the hells does that face loose and hang front? I mean, I, that does that does uh, concoct some images in someone's heads, right? I mean, that's kind of gross, Michael. Save that kind of talk for the locker room. Final letter, Jerry in Texas. Says that X-Men number 46 was one of the best Marvel comics ever. Really now. Uh, he's okay with the X-Men splitting up, but hopes they split into tandems rather than going solo, even suggesting the tandems here. And, if, I mean, it's going to come as no surprise here. Scott should be paired with Gene. Bobby should be paired with Hank. Here's something a little interesting here. He says that Angel should meet up with Banshee. Hmm, there are worse ideas out there. Uh, he tries to no-prize Gene's ability to mentally blast through Juggernaut's helmet by suggesting that Gene's TP is on a different wavelength than Professor X's. Which I guess isn't the dumbest theory, right? Uh, he wraps up by saying he hopes we get a Jean Grey origin story backup feature. Even though we did see her join up in X-Men number one, and that seems to be what... I, I guess Claremont will have his fun with that later on down the line. I don't know that we need Arnold Drake having the professor and Jean sitting in Jean's living room saying, Hey, you're, you know, you're a telekinetic. Come, come to my school. And I don't think Annie What's-Her-Face getting hit by a car is even a thing just yet, so... I guess we'll worry about that if and when it comes. But those, my friends, are the letters. Let's head into the other half of our back matter, the bullpen bulletins. Subtitle is Stop the Presses. Here's some scoops and scuttlebutt to knock you out of your teepee. And Stan ain't talking about telepathy here. Item. Marvel's got seven swinging specials on the racks right now. Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Hulk, Sergeant Fury, Avengers, Millie the Model, and Tales of Asgard. Item. Now here's a biggie. Stan says he ain't gonna answer letters anymore. But that's a good thing, you see. For two reasons. First, it leaves more room to print more letters. Second, it allows the letter hacks to answer each other's questions and missives. 
Oh, boy. <laughs> Sounds to me like Stan's just, maybe he's overworked. Maybe he's uh, taking the easy way out. Maybe he's uh, maybe he's on a break. Maybe he's just being lazy. Who knows? But um, I hope this is short-lived because uh, I tell you what, uh, some of these letters are brutal, as, as you know. I mean, some of them are great. Some of them are great and brutal at the same time. But we could always count on Stan having something silly to say after all of them. Now, now they're kind of just, uh, they're kind of like a joke that don't land. You know, it's like you say the joke and, like, nobody reacts at all. It kind of just floats there and you look like an idiot. I mean, I'm very familiar with that sensation. So um, that's kind of how these letters feel. It's like, hey, here's my really wonderful point and, well, nobody said anything. Oh, well. Item. Uh, This is another one of those where, like, Stan is looking out his window and he sees a bunch of people working, so he's just going to list them. So uh, we got... Roy Thomas, Gary Friedrich, John Romita, Jack Kirby, Don Heck, Jim Steranko, Marie Severin, John Severin, and Dick Ayers. He sees them out his window. They're doing work. They're working on Marvel books. They're writing. They're drawing. They're doing the thing. Uh, Stan promises to talk more about them next time. So, joy. Let's get into Stan's soapbox. This is a follow-up on last month's soapbox where Stan said that Marvel was going to shy away from editorializing on controversial topics, things in the news, stuff like that. He shares a letter with a goofball who wants Stan and company to editorialize, citing the Silver Surfer as a moralistic character. Not sure what morality has to do with things like American politics, but okay. Uh, Stan says that this is all it took to convince him, and that he will start editorializing post-haste. And I'd say hopefully he's kidding... But I've already read the next month's uh, bullpen bulletins and soapbox, so he's not. He is going to start opining on relevant things. However, it is in a very Stanley sort of kid glove sort of way here, and um, I don't think it's anything that anybody would be offended by. So we'll get there when we get there. Um, I feel like this letter <laughs> might have been concocted uh, in-house <laughs> in order to facilitate Stan shifting to uh, this wavelength, but... um. What do I know? What do I know? I'm just an idiot in the current year. Let's wrap up with the mighty Marvel checklist here. We got Spectacular Spider-Man number two, which looks like just a full-color reprint of Spectacular Spider-Man number one that Stan's been trying to shill for the past year and a half in this book. Uh, we also have The Worst from Not Brand Ugh number 10. And um, at least the title represents the content. I, I, I know it's not The Worst, from, uh, but that's how they market here. This, uh, oh boy, this is going to feature the Fantastical Four, which, I mean, that's that's funny, right? That's funny in and of itself, Fantastical Four instead of Fantastic Four. And also, the battle between Spidey-Man, you know, instead of Spider-Man, you see, that, that's funny, and Nat-Man, G-N-A-T, Nat-Man, who I thought was like a small press black and white character in the 80s, but, um, or is that Nat-Rat? I don't know. But um, I'm guessing that's going to be the Mighty Marvel take on Batman. Which, I mean, that's funny, right? <sighs> Silver Surfer number two is still on sale. Fantastical Four number... <laughs> Fantastic Four number 80 has uh, the long-awaited return of Wyatt Wingfoot. Fantastic Four special number six has Sue Storm or Sue Richards finally given birth. Spider-Man 66 is the return of the murderous Mysterio. Spider-Man Special Number 5 features the truth about Spider-Man's long-lost parents. For now, anyway. Avengers Number 57, Hero or Killer? Welcome to the world, The Vision. 
Avengers Special Number 2 is still on sale, and of course, that's still the new Avengers versus the Originals. Marvel Superheroes Number 17 features an all-new story with the Black Knight. Daredevil Number 45 has DD given his lumps, which is to say, Stan probably hasn't read it yet, and as such, you know, can't share anything <laughs> particular about it. Mighty Thor 157 has a more Mangog, this time with Odin Sword. Captain America 106 versus Dr. Faustus. Incredible Hulk 109, written by Stan Lee, guest-starring Kazar. Hulk Special Number 1 is still on sale, and uh, probably still available by the ton, because, uh, well, it's got the Inhumans in it. And I'm guessing this is 64 pages of the Hulk trying to stay awake in his own book. Iron Man number 7 puts Shellhead versus the Magia, or Magia, however you say that word. I've read it a million times, I've said it twice. Submariner number 7, Destiny for President. Well, I guess we're, we're getting relevant in the, uh, the Nixon-Humphreys age. Captain Marvel number 7 versus Quasimodo? Didn't we just get rid of him here last issue? Okay. Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., who are the others? And I won't make any lost jokes here. Doctor Strange 174 versus the Nefarious Necron. Sergeant Fury number 59 is D-Day for Dum Dum. Captain Savage number 7. The Raiders risk it all to save. Ben Grimm? Hmm. Tales of Asgard is still on sale. Marvel Collector's Items Classics 1... I'm sorry, 117. No, it's only issue 17. And Marvel Tales number 17 still feature reprints. Well, my friends, that is... X-Men number 49, the stories, the letters, the bullpen bulletins. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these stories and whatnot. Um, if anybody has uh, anything they'd like to say, or if you just want to say hello, I invite you to do so. You find me at all the usual places. Uh, Chris is on infinitearts.com, uh, weirdcomicshistory@gmail.com. Uh, where, where, where else am I? Um, Ace Comics on Twitter, and of course, the little X-Lapsed group on the Facebook machine. So I... Uh, Hope to hear from you. I look forward to hearing from you. And I would like to thank you all so much for choosing to spend a little bit of your day with me today. Till next time, as always, talk to you again real soon. See ya.